Brought to you by DKP and Code Chartered Accountants and Aspire Planning Group. Football bosses with Michael Zapponi and Tony Pinata on FNR Football Nation Radio. Welcome to the Football Bosses. Michael Zapponi and Tony Pinata with you on FNR. Tony, uh, another massive week in the World Game and we have another two football bosses from our game joining us. Looking forward to another intriguing conversation. Ben Wilson, who's the boss of the referees. Gee, hasn't he got a bit to talk about at the moment? Yeah, can't wait to talk to him. A couple of things, especially uh, VAR and um, what's been happening uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks with, um, with VAR and some of the issues they've been having. And uh, Peter Philopoulos, who's the boss at the Perth Glory, a CEO there. And uh, one of the things I want to talk to Peter about uh, is around stadium deals. I think it's a huge issue for the game. I think it's an issue we need to start talking about. And it really has been brought about by uh, the fact that we're playing in big stadiums uh, and increasingly we're seeing more empty seats uh, around A-League venues. We look at Suncorp Stadium, uh, Brisbane, they're getting some decent crowds there, uh, but in a 50,000-seat stadium when you've got 15,000 playing there. Etihad Stadium uh, on the Cup Eve game, Melbourne victory, just over 20,000 in a 55,000-capacity stadium. I just don't think it's a good look for our game, and financially, it's not a good um, financial outcome for the clubs either. No, you're right, and we had that issue at uh, at Allianz. You know, we get a reasonable crowd, 16,000, 17,000 in a 43,000, and... It was, uh, you know, looked looked empty, and uh, even though we had a good deal um, financially, we were okay. Um, it, it, it's not a good look, and that's and the misconception was where the Wanderers will get twelve, thirteen in an eighteen thousand seater, and everyone would be saying, "Oh wow, look at their crowds, etc." But they were actually getting less. So, for TV point of view, it looks looks fantastic. We played one game at Wollongong, where we had to play away, and we had uh, just under twelve thousand, but it was packed. And the feedback was amazing from, from everyone because it looked so good on TV. So it is an issue. They are multi-purpose venues. There's not a lot of them. And it's something that, uh, you know, the clubs are trying to grapple with as, as well. And, um, you, know, you know, playing at a stadium such as Leichhardt, Cogra, um, even um, the one in, 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 in Brisbane, um, not Perry Park. Um, Ballymore. Ballymore, that's right. You know, are they the right... Uh, stadia to play in, given you know the requirements around hospitality, television, um, spectator comfort, etc. So it is an issue with uh, with with all clubs. It is a debate that is raging at the moment in Sydney because the uh, state government in New South Wales is uh, debating what they do with uh, the Allianz Stadium and ANZ Stadium, both uh, looking set for a revamp. But just give us an insight into what it was like as the CEO of Sydney FC and and working with the state government there and uh, the, the trust that runs uh, Allianz Stadium. Because even last week, Sydney FC played a Friday night game against Perth Glory. There were probably 10,000 people there, and and all you're seeing is uh, majority of empty seats. Yeah, look, um, Allianz needs, needs to be knocked down. It's it's old, it's tired, and the hospitality for, for corporates is non-existent. You know, you're paying for premium seats and there's no roof. And... Uh, Come February, it rains in Sydney, and um, you know we've had those uh, games where you know corporates would be getting wet. So it needs a, a whole revamp. 
Um, that's an extraordinary uh, assertion, though. You know, this stadium, you, you, the way you're talking, if you have never been there, you'd think it'd be like the Centenario in Uruguay where it's literally falling down. It, it's not a bad stadium. Sure, it needs some, some work, but is it that drastic that uh, we should be spending taxpayers' money on bulldozing the joint and, and rebuilding it? And will that really solve the problem? It needs to be knocked down. Um, first of all, it's not safe, given the... Um uh, the the egress um, around the ground and and the width and when you've got big crowds there, um, it, it's not safe and uh, it, it really needs a, a full revamp and you know just refurbishing is not the option. Um, I'm surprised that they're going to knock down ANZ as well because there was talk about redeveloping that into a, um, a, a you know rectangular and, and it needs to be rectangular um, and I know that the NRL and the FFA are really pushing for ANZ first. And I know that the you know Danny Townsend, the CEO of uh, Sydney FC, is really pushing for uh, Allianz first. So, you know, it's a catch twenty two. It's a lot of money, um, but uh, we're so lucky here in Melbourne with with the stadium we have here. With uh, you know, Amy, such is the perfect venue. I know Victory play at Eddie had. They play five games, and uh, if the seats aren't in, it's not a great. Uh, platform to to view the game, but Amy's fantastic, and uh, Sydney just doesn't have that infrastructure. It doesn't have the infrastructure in terms of trains and trams and everything like that um, to to get to somewhere like Allianz. We are, we had to spend you know hundreds of thousands of dollars every year to pay for the public transport. Uh, if you're a member or you bought a ticket, uh, just to get people there and make sure that they didn't have to pay the five dollars from Central Station for that couple of k's up the road to uh, to get a bus. So, so Sydney FC, the club would would uh, would pay for the public transport costs yeah. for, to get your, your members there? Yeah, it was, it was costing us probably over $150,000 a year. Um, and it's something I introduced in 2012. Uh, it's a huge expense, but it's something that we, we, we thought we'd, uh, you know, we, we decided to do to, it, to get people there. And this begs the question, it's not an easy place to get in or out of uh, Allianz Stadium in Sydney. Why build it there? Like if we if we're saying it's hard to get to, hard to get in and out, then we're going to go to the trouble of bulldozing the joint. Why wouldn't uh, the the government look for for an alternate venue? Yeah, well, they are making a light rail. So if you've ever been to Sydney, you've been down George Street. Um, you know, when you um, go down there, you'll have a look, and uh, that's going to stop outside the um, Allianz Stadium. The precinct is fantastic. You got the SCG. You got you know all the major codes are there. Um, it just needs that infrastructure and something that Sydney's never had. Um, you know, Melbourne's unique. You know, the, you know, with the MCG, Amy, you know, Rod Laver Arena, that precinct, it's just a short walking distance from the city. But, um, you know, hopefully the light rail will change um, things in um, in that Allianz uh, district. In terms of where we're at with the A-League, the, the crowds are down on, on what we've had last year and, the, and we could talk for hours about the, the combination of factors that are, that are leading to that, but when you look at uh, the viability of clubs and the financial viability of clubs, they need to have stadium deals which, uh, which help them, uh, not hinder them. And at the moment, most of the clubs are struggling with their stadium deals and, and that is because the state governments run the, the venues right around the country and are really holding the, the, the clubs to ransom. So the onus should be on the FFA, not on the individual clubs themselves, to lobby government to ensure better deals for each of the clubs. Was that your experience uh, in, in your time with Sydney FC? Was, was the FFA getting involved in those negotiations or was it left up to the clubs themselves? No, the FFA want to know uh, about the negotiations, um, you know, they can structure Socceroos games, you know, if they want to play at Allianz, you know, it does help. But 
you know, to, to be fair, the Sydney Trust, uh, we just did a new 10-year um, lease um, just uh, before I finished. And, uh, look, we got a good deal and um, it, it, it really works well. But we, we had to push hard um, and we had to show that, you know, we would get the crowds we wanted. And, um, you know, we with the derbies and, and some of the finals there, we had, the, you know, the grand final over 40-odd thousand there. So, you know, we, we did a, a very, very good deal. But I know from Brisbane's point of view, Brisbane Mall, and their deal with Suncorp is, is pretty bad. And I know NIB, um, and we can speak to Peter about that later in the show, uh, you know, he, he has he has it hard, and and a lot of the clubs uh, do suffer and have to pay some some big big money. And you now Central Coast are trying to buy their their stadium, uh, which is fantastic. And if you look at the MLS model, not that we're ever going to get there. Um, no club can enter the uh, the league without having their own stadium built specifically. And uh, but you know we don't get catering. Uh, clubs don't get catering rights. Um, they don't get advertising rights, so you're only in and out, and you know it's a lot of money that uh, you can't generate. When you look at the AFL and one of the most successful clubs uh, financially is is Geelong, and and a big part of that is because they own their own venue and uh, they have the the signage rights, they have the catering rights, so uh, there are a lot of revenue streams that that football club can uh, can look back at and uh, and help them financially which is we, where we need to get to eventually but uh, I think it's a conversation we need to have now when we're looking at expanding the A league this is one of the think the critical things that uh, we need to get right and I think uh, any new team coming in to the A league should look at having their own stadium built for them specifically for them and run by them and they can do events around it I mean the other thing about these um, stadiums is you know you you've, you've tended it and then you could be kicked out because uh, Monster Jam's there or a concert or something else. And then you have to play on, on pitches which aren't fantastic. So, And you'll see that towards the end of, um, end of this year, early January, when the, when the concert season starts. All right, we'll get stuck into uh, more discussion on that when the CEO of Perth Glory, Peter Philopoulos, joins us. Ben Wilson, the head of the referees, will join us shortly. Before he does, though, Tony, I want to get your view on... Uh, the VAR and how that's tracking at the moment. Uh, the head of the A-League, Greg O'Rourke, joined us uh, on this program a couple of weeks ago to discuss that issue when we had the first controversy around the VAR. There was another one in the Cup Eve game and the FFA have come out and said very strongly that uh, they're working on the system. They know it's not right, but they're going to stick with it. Should we stick with it? Definitely. Um, we, I was at the first game. We were playing Wellington away. Uh, I was there at Westpac and there was a handball in the 80th minute. This is last season. When Last they were season, trialling it, yep, yep. Yeah, the first first ever VAR decision, and was called back for for handball, and was correct decision. And you know, we got some other, uh, I suppose, decisions our way at the time. Um, people can argue if it's a wrong decision. If it's the right decision, why argue? You know, a few weeks ago, Massimo Macaroni scored a very very good goal. Unfortunately, he was came back from an offside position. It's it's offside. You know, I know people say, well, how far you go back, you know, this and that. But the VAR got it right. The last few weeks, we've seen some issues around time. And, and you know, a couple of weeks ago, Bobo, uh, in the penalty, which was the right decision, they took ages to make that decision, but they got it right. Last week, I thought, um, and we'll speak to Ben, um, they stopped the play for a few minutes because of the incorrect yellow card. Now, do you really... And, you know, played in victory's hands because, um, you know, Wanderers took... Ages to uh, Riera to, to score the penalty, and he missed it. But uh, you know, maybe that could be done at a later date. 
uh, later time and, and allow the, the game to flow a bit. But anyway, we'll have a chat to Ben and, um, you know, th- there's some issues, but I think it's uh, it's worthwhile keeping the Yeah, VAR. the extraordinary thing around the, uh, mon- the Monday night decision was that the hold-up was all about mistaken identity and the, the yellow card being awarded to the wrong player. Uh, they need to solve that uh, at another time. Get the penalty taken. I agree. Uh, Oriel Riera had two minutes and 40 seconds to contemplate his penalty kick and uh, in the end I reckon that uh, that proved costly for them uh, Western Sydney and for Oriel Riera and helped Melbourne victory uh, uh, to a degree. We'll discuss that and a lot more coming up on the Football Bosses. Michael Zapponi and Tony, Tony Pinata with you on FNR. Welcome back to the Football Bosses. Michael Zapponi, Tony Pinata with you. And uh, we speak to all the bosses of our sport. And we're very, very lucky to have the boss of the referees with us now, Ben Wilson. Welcome to the program. Thank you. G'day. How are you going? Yeah, very well. Thanks for joining us. We know there's lots to talk about. Everyone loves to talk about the referees, don't they? And uh, we've, you've given us a little bit more reason to talk about uh, your blokes coming uh, in the last few weeks with the introduction of the VAR. Just give us a, an indication from from your point of view as to as to how you think it's going. Yeah, I suppose um, with the VAR, there's a lot more scrutiny on on refereeing decisions and how it's actually being um, applied in the A League, being one of the first leagues in the world to do it. Um, we haven't had too many reviews where we've actually changed decisions on the on the use of the VAR, but where we have required the VAR, I think the time that it that it has taken um, for those decisions has generally been uh, too long, and we're doing a lot to um, try and reduce that time taken to uh, make it more acceptable to the football um, fans, players and everybody else. Talk to us about uh, the specific uh, conversations that happened between the referees and the video assistant referee. My understanding is that uh, that you're looking at trying to, to cut that back a bit because two hours, two, two minutes and 40 seconds uh, between the decision made uh, on Monday night and Oriol Riera having to take his penalty. There was a two-way conversation between the video assistant on the night and the Peter Green who was on the ground. Is it something that you need to, to fine-tune in terms of the way that you're communicating? Yeah, it's actually not the, the amount of, of communication that is the delay. What happened there, there was actually two decisions that the VAR needed on. Uh, the first one, which was the clear one that most people saw and was ruled on quite quickly, was the actual penalty decision itself. Uh, the referee gave the penalty, uh, the VAR gave it the all clear. Um, then, before the penalty could be taken, they they came to the realisation that the referee had cautioned the wrong player. And, of course, mistaken identity is one of those four things that the VAR can rule on. So, once they, they realised that he had cautioned uh, player number 22 instead of player number 4, they asked Peter to, to hold the penalty kick, and that's why you could see him coming in to the penalty spot a couple of times. Um, they looked back, they said, who did you caution? He said, I caution number 22. They said, I don't think that's right, just hold the penalty kick. And they went back and looked at the footage again. They saw that it should have been number four, and then they gave him that information that he needed to change his decision. He gave the TV sign, um, cautioned the correct player, and then the penalty kick was, was taken, and obviously we saw that it was missed. So, um, yeah, that, that took too long, um, but... It's just a little bit of... Um, it's, a, it's a very unusual situation where the referee does caution the wrong player and uh, that was the, the real reason for the, the main part of the delay. Ben, Tony Pinata, how are you? G'day, Tony. Good. Um, look, I'm a, a big fan of uh, the VAR and I know you know there's a lot of people that say just let the game flow, but if you get the correct decision, you can't argue. Um, people are going to argue anyhow, but um, 
you know, a couple of weeks ago we saw Massimo Macaroni score a fantastic goal, um, albeit it, it was offside because he came back from an offside position. Correct decision. Um, goal didn't stand. But uh, I just, with this uh, mistaken identity, is it something you can do later? I mean, do you have to do it at that, that crucial point of the game? Because it was a crucial point because Wanderers were going to, you know, have a penalty tick to go 2 nil up. Um, that 2 minutes 40 probably played on Riera's mind a little bit. He missed the penalty game in a the, in the draw. I mean, do you have to do it then? Can you do it later? You know, can you do it at half-time? Yeah, I don't think we would want to wait till half-time. The the refer- on-field referees realised they'd cautioned the wrong player. The assistant referee actually brought to the attention of the referee, and they were in the process of um, dealing with it, and they had basically decided that they were going to correct it after the kick was taken. Um, that sort of wasn't picked up by the VAR, who once he heard that there was the wrong caution, he took it upon himself to to prevent the, the penalty kick from being taken and to get the correct outcome before play restarted. Obviously, in hindsight, given that the delay was um, to correct a Melbourne victory yellow card offence um, and nobody had been sent off or anything serious like that, and it was delaying to the detriment potentially of the Wanderers player waiting to take the penalty kick, I think it would be a much more acceptable approach if we let the kick be taken, they score or they don't score, and then at the next opportunity, um, the referee corrects the record and says, of course, the wrong player, and, and we did it that way. Um, it's an unusual situation. We didn't spend a lot of time in our training on, on dealing with the state and identities. Um, I think you know, the whole team has learned a lot from that incident on Monday night. Have the Western Sydney contacted uh, you or the FFA about that? I've had no contact myself with um, anyone from the Wanderers, but um, you know, they may have contacted uh, Greg O'Rourke, I think. Um, they, they probably speak to him on a daily basis, I'd say, most, as most clubs do. Uh, but I've had no specific contact about that, that decision this week. But needless to say, the, the VAR is here to stay. You, you, you are committed to it uh, for the remainder of the season. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think we're part of a, a worldwide uh, experiment with, with VAR. And as long as uh, IFAB and FIFA are, are still contributing or considering that experiment and whether it can be used in the World Cup next year, uh, we're committed to being part of that experiment with them until the end of this season at least. And when does FIFA sort of make the final decision on VR going forward? Yeah, so the expectation is that they will meet in March next year as part of their annual um, meeting and they'll make a a decision which could be a recommendation to introduce it. It could be a recommendation to continue the trial or or they might decide that it's not, not in the best interest of football. So that decision around March will potentially, if they go ahead with it, allow it to be used at the World Cup next year. And what's your feeling? Do you think they uh, will continue with it? Yeah, I think so. I think there's enough positives in the game to to see that it it, it can be worthwhile. Obviously, being new technology and us being new to to introducing it, uh, there are some teething problems, but I think that we are getting the decisions right with the VR. The the, the issue is the time it is taking to get those decisions, and I think with with more practice and more matches, um, those um, decision-making times will come down. Ben, I'm sure you're aware of comments made by Kevin Musket after the game on Monday night about uh, referees using discretion or, or refereeing the game to the letter of the law. He was pretty strong in the press conference afterwards and he had, a, I suppose, a gripe about uh, the Mitch Austin uh, send-off and uh, the fact that he'd picked up two yellow cards uh, within a short space of time. The second yellow card, probably the one that uh, caused most debate to the letter of the law. It was a bookable offence. 
but uh, under those circumstances, do you encourage referees to feel the game and feel the situation of a game before acting, or do you always instruct them to referee the game to the letter of the law? Oh, I think there's, there's a need for referees to understand the match that they're refereeing, and there has to be a degree of um, discretion at times. The thing with, with people is they want consistency, but they just don't want it all the time, and that's when we get into trouble. Um, so I've asked the referees and I've told the clubs that you know we're asking asking them to have a little bit of a feel for the game. We call it uh, game empathy, um, but there's some, some things that you can't um, shy away from, and uh, for me... The yellow cards, both yellow cards that that player received on Monday night, um, I would expect uh, you know, all of my referees to have acted in the same way for those two incidents. Look, I agree. I thought uh, what Mitch did was uh, was a yellow card. Forget, you know, the first one. The second one was definitely a yellow card. If uh, you know, if he was stood there and they hit him into him, it could have done something. But he actually lifted his uh, foot to stop the uh, the play uh, continuing. So definitely a yellow card. And uh, you know, going back to to Kevin, you know. I think in the end Milligan was probably lucky as well and and there was that discretion I think that Peter Green took in terms of uh, the game and, and the feel of the game so uh, I suppose referees tend to when they can um, but uh, I think you're right Ben that uh, clubs want to see consistency and if they allowed that um, incident with uh, Mitch Austin to escape then the next time it happened you know, how do you deal with it? Yeah but this, you know, Kevin does have a point to an extent because each referee is an individual and you know, I, I want my referees to be consistent from the first minute to the 90th minute, and that's, I guess, non-negotiable. They should also be consistent from week to week. Um, and then the, the holy grail is for all of my referees to be exactly the same week after week. And um, that's something we're always working towards, but it's almost something that can never be totally achieved because of the individuals that are making the decisions. Um, ben, you've uh, introduced now this red and yellow card for the, uh, the officials on the... Uh um, on the bench, uh, has, has any anyone received one years yet? T- talk us no. about what's the um, what's the idea behind that. Yeah, so we've adopted this um, from IFAB. They've got a, a Playfair initiative that they're trying to roll out around the world, and this is one of the things that they think can uh, lead to improved uh, behaviour from the team officials and also increased respect towards referees. Um, so we've introduced it into the uh, A League and also into the Westfield W League, and um, after first week we haven't had to issue any yellow cards to any team officials um, but yeah I think over the course of the season there, there will be occasions where coaches or assistants or team officials are receiving yellow cards but it, the, this initiative will allow people in the crowd to understand um, that you know, team officials are on their last warning if they continue like that they'll be sent off So they do, they, so it, under what circumstances uh, would, would a, a coach or an official be booked Yes. Did you say booked? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so many uh, of the instances are similar to players. So things like dissent towards a, uh, a match official. Um, we, we use sarcastic clapping as an example. Um, if a player does that, then they get a yellow card. Uh, if a coach does that, they should get a yellow card as well. Um, if they consistently um, leave a technical area, um, they, can, they can get a yellow card uh, or consistently um, infringe, I guess. And for more serious offences like violent conduct or throwing a, a drink bottle at somebody, um, they would be straight red cards. And a straight red card would mean automatic suspension, like a, a player. Yeah. yeah, I believe so. Uh, so we've got the um, playing regulations or disciplinary regulations are very similar to the players. So if you accumulate a certain number of yellow cards, you'll get a suspension, like a player. 
and if you get a red card, there would, there would be a suspension associated with that, which is not different to how it already is. Um, you know, last season, if a coach was removed from the technical area, they they faced the suspension as well. So there's no changes to that side of things in relation to straight red cards or removal from the t- technical area. It's just a little bit more transparent for everybody. One of the other big talking points this season has been uh, around Bessar Parisha. They all seem to be around Melbourne victory, Tony. <laughs> so Bessar Parisha facing a two-week ban uh, after coming in contact with uh, Daniel Elder, the fourth official in that game against Adelaide United at the Adelaide Oval a few weeks ago now. A uh, hot debate about uh, you know Daniel uh, approaching Bessard and, and putting his hands on, on Barisha and Barisha reacting to that. Uh, Barisha was, was found guilty of, of manhandling the, the, the assistant. Uh, do you have a conversation with Daniel about, uh, about approaching Barisha and, and, and keeping you know, away from the player? Because uh, I've spoken to referees who've, who've refereed the game in the past and, and they've told me that they've always been instructed to stand away uh, let the melee occur, let the players sort it out, and then take action. Yeah, ideally, um, you don't want to be making contact with, with the players. Um, Daniel's actions were, I suppose, meant well, intended well. He was trying to um, separate players and prevent any melee or flare-up. Um, the fact that he, he did um, touch the player then, you know, I guess, had contributed to the incident uh, escalating as it did. So... Um, I spoke to Daniel after that incident and we've given a reminder to all the match officials um, to, to be wary of you know, trying not to make contact with, with players because um, you know, it's, it's not needed. Yeah, I um, was it Sean Evans who was refereeing that game? Uh, I don't, uh, I don't uh, recall. Yes. Yeah, I, I was disappointed Sean giving the yellow card because I thought it was a straight red to, uh, to Bessart and could have been dealt there um, straight on the spot. Um, I think the two weeks was, was fair. You, you, you can't touch referee, although... I thought Daniel probably should have just told Barisha to get back to his position without sort of pushing, and you've done that now. But, uh, you know, <laughs> that's caused a bit of uh, some uh, topics over the last... Um, you know, divided the uh, the media. I know Ned Zelich is uh, very anti um, that suspension, but uh, I think in the end uh, it was probably the right decision. Although I think someone like Sean, with his experience, should have dealt with it on the spot. Yeah, you don't well, have to comment, Ben. That was just my, <laughs> <laughs> just my, uh, hey, my just, view. Just one last one, Ben, uh, b- before we let you go. We know that uh, the referees are now full-time professionals. When, when you sit back and have a look at uh, uh, the progression over the last couple of years, has it helped our, our match officials? Uh, I think so. It's probably worthwhile noting that we only have three who are full-time professionals. The rest still have um, day jobs. Um, but the three that are full-time do get the benefit of a, a much... Uh, better work-life balance with their preparation uh, for matches, their recovery after matches, and you know their ability to have a life outside of refereeing, which everybody else in the panel who does have to have another job as well as referee on the weekend uh, still has that that balancing act, which is uh, which is difficult for many of them. Ben, we thank you very much for joining us and answering uh, all those tough questions. Uh, we we appreciate it and our listeners appreciate it as well. We wish you all the best and uh, we hope we don't have to talk to you for the rest of the season. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Thanks very much. Good Thanks, on you, ben. ben. Ben Wilson, head of the uh, referees, the boss of the referees, here on the Football Bosses. You're listening to F. Welcome back to the Football Bosses on FNR. Michael Zapponi and Tony Pinata with you and joining us now, another boss... Welcome to the program, the boss of the Perth Glory Football Club, Peter Philopoulos. Hello, Peter. G'day, Michael and Tony. Uh, Good to to be on your show. Congratulations. Great to have you on, Pete, and uh, we thank you for your time. 
Uh, we know, Pete, you've, you've had a, a rich history in the game, being involved in uh, at junior level and, uh, of course, at South Melbourne, uh, running South Melbourne when they were in the National Soccer League. And, of course, you spent some time at Etihad Stadium as well, running the commercial side of the business there and now, of course, at uh, Perth Glory. Uh, you're a football man. Uh, we, we'll get stuck into some issues with you. But firstly, how, how are you finding your time in Perth? I'm enjoying it, mate. It's 32 degrees outside today. And uh, we've, uh, we've already started swimming in the water here, uh, watching for sharks, of course, but it's all nice. <laughs> yeah, stay away from Cottesloe, <laughs> mate. <laughs> uh, you're a Melbourne boy through and through. Don't worry, we'll get you back one day. But uh, you, you've done a great job, if, if we can say so. And uh, we know that the crowds are, are up in Perth and uh, the membership's up in Perth. Just talk to us a bit about the challenge of joining that club because they, they went through a bit of a tough period there for a moment. They changed a few CEOs within uh, a short space of time and uh, we know that Tony Sage is is a chairman of the club and the owner of the club and, you know, uh, he, he widely uh, widely known as a, a, pl- a man who uh, does things his own way. What's it been like for you working uh, with, with Tony and, uh, and uh, your initial experience at the club? I'm very really grateful to get an opportunity to work back in football and I'm very grateful that my family supported me to come over to Perth and, and live here for a period of time um, and take over the reins here at Perth Glory. It was a tough time when I came in. They just breached the salary cap and uh, they were in all sorts of trouble and I think they lacked a lot of direction during that period, especially in the A-League era because uh, they went from being an NSL club um, and into the A-League and uh, the original owner, Nick Tarner, handed the licence back early on. He wasn't really happy with the, the framework of the A-League early, early days because uh, it really knocked out a lot of the creative juices that he was able to create under the NSL. And uh, The club went for you know, you know, a period of time uh, under the ownership of FFA and then uh, did, Tony Sage did come in to, to save the club and, and take it on and, 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 and probably came in with very little experience of running a sports club. Um, so there was a sort of trial and error, and, and understandably so, uh, which culminated many years later, and you know, with the, with the salary cap races in fourteen and fifteen. You know, watching it all unfold from Melbourne, I thought it was a good opportunity for me to come back into the fold and, and spoke to FFA about my interest. And you know, before I knew it, I was in the chair, and um, it's been a great journey so far. You know, I think our membership's grown from you know uh, low sixes. We should get to ten thousand this year. The crowds went from, uh, we're about 8,000 average now, they're about 11.7 at the moment, uh, with our two strong crowds this year. And next game against Victory, we're expecting at least 13 or 14,000 to come to that. Uh, we've grown our sponsorship and corporate portfolios. I think the revenue we've increased by $2 million over the two years that I've been here, uh, I suppose using my commercial skill set that I've acquired over a long period of time. So. And, you know, off, on the park, uh, you know, we're building a, uh, a junior academy, which is exciting. Uh, at the moment, we're in the process working with FFA to get our two-star status, which we'll get soon. We're just going to tick off a couple of things which we're working towards. Um, and uh, I think we've had a pretty stable sort of period of time on the field with Kenny Lowe and, and the coaches and uh, made two finals appearances. But, you know, the A-League uh, silverware is uh, eluding us and that's something we're working towards. Hey Peter, um, Tony, um, thanks for coming on the show. No, look, um, I know we've worked pretty closely over you know, the few years and what, well, you've been in Perth now, what, three, four years? It's my third year. Third year and uh, look, uh, from what I've seen, you've, you know, you've done a, an amazing job there and you know, with your crowds and your members um, and, and really stabilised the, the club uh, to be one of the, you know, the leaders in the, uh, in the A-League. Um, 
yeah, on the pitch, I think uh, you'll eventually get there. I think you've got a good squad. Uh, the travel travel side is, is something that uh, I know from my time at Wellington, uh, which was you know it's the same sort of distance from the east coast, uh, probably closer than Perth. Uh, it does take it out of you, but uh, you know we uh, you know we we spoke a little bit about um, stadiums and 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 deals yep. etc. And um, you know we we sort of shared notes as, as all CEOs did at the time to, yep. to talk about it. And yep. I know you know you've um, you've been at NIB for a, for a while. You've got a new um, stadium being built um, in Perth. When's that, when, when will that be ready? Well, it's going to be opening up in uh, January, uh, the new stadium. The most expensive stadium in Australia, I think it's cost $1.6 billion to build. Okay, and that, what's a 60,000 capacity? 60,000? I think a little bit too big for my liking, but anyway, that's something that, uh, especially for, for a sports town, it's really fickle. So it's not very sticky with their, their team. They like winners. Uh, so when West Coast and Fremantle are winning, you know, you can't get enough seats, uh, but when they're losing, you can't give them away. So, uh, and the same applies with Perth Glory, you know, success breeds success. And, you know, whilst we're working really heavily with uh, engaging our community to get people, you know, bums on seats, um, you know, a success is that domino effect. And uh, Perth certainly is like that. I'm learning, you know, have marketing sport for a long period of time I've, I've quickly learned that marketing marketing sport in Melbourne is completely different to marketing sport in a city like Perth and uh, you know I've had to learn that quickly I'm working harder than ever uh, but not only that but you know, we're also fighting that battle the, the, our lounge room experience is getting way better you know we've all get our TVs are getting bigger uh, our sound systems are getting better the, the, you know, the, fridge, the fridge is full of cheap beer uh, you can you know, interact on your yeah on your mobile devices and people on social media say so they're not just watching the one screen either are they? That's right, and that, you know that's something that the stadium experience has essentially stayed very very you know still along the time. And when I was at Etihad, I was the strategic commercial and marketing lead there. One of the projects that I led successfully was the connected stadium strategy. And what motivated me was that is that that, that experience, that lounge room experience, and it was really vital. I mean, at the time, we'll come, you'd come to a full house at Etihad Stadium and you couldn't even, you know, get any 4G connectivity or any Wi-Fi or whatever. So, you know, people that want to come there and interact with their phones and their devices, it wasn't a really great experience, right? So um, putting together that connected stadium strategy where I think Etihad was one of the first to have high-density Wi-Fi, 1600 IPTV screens, uh, fan engagement app, um, all those, uh, you know, high-definition LED signing displays, the experience changed straight away. You can actually go to a game at Etihad now with your device, tap into the Wi-Fi and, uh, you know, watch the watch the game on, 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 on Fox Sports on your device as the game is going live will be on your Twitter or whatever you want to be. It's, it's better Wi-Fi connectivity than your, your household ADSL. Yeah, look, I think um, a Thanks lot to of Telstra. Yeah, <laughs> get, get to get that in. Didn't you? I think um, you're right, Peter. It's that experience um, in in the stadium that, that people want, and uh, you know, I know that for the for the big games, for the you know for the finals, the big derbies, um, people want to be at the at the ground because of the the atmosphere that creates a full stadium atmosphere that uh, you know they get involved. But uh, for the non Sort of for the lesser games, uh, in fairness to to, to lot uh, people, would rather stay home and watch it on TV. They still support the A League. They still support the team. 
um, they can still be members, but um, they won't, uh, you know, travel and uh, you know, spend that extra few dollars in, in terms of uh, food and beverage and all that sort of stuff. But uh, I think your stadium, NIB, is, you know, is fantastic. The pitch is always amazing. It's immaculate. Um, it's the right size. Um, without going into specifics and, and confidential sort of um, numbers, I mean, are you happy with the, with the deal that you are getting with NIB? Uh, is there room to, to negotiate? Yeah. Are, are you looking to play in the new um, stadium when it's yeah. built in Perth? Yeah. Yeah, we did look at playing a couple of games uh, at, in Perth at the Perth Stadium, but unfortunately the commercials just didn't make sense with us. And I think there will be a period of time where we will play a game there, but... Uh, as we continue to build our membership and crowds, uh, we'll, we'll work with Perth Stadium to find that time. I think we're lucky that we've got a, uh, an international against Chelsea coming up in July, August 2018, where we we also want to sample that rectangular that rectangular mode that they keep on talking about, um, because we're also very conscious that you know the football purists don't really like playing in an oval shaped uh, uh, stadium and. Uh, uh, some of the social listening was done with our members and fans indicate that they're not huge fans of taking a game to Perth Stadium. So for us, that Chelsea game will be uh, a good opportunity to sample and uh, you know digest some of the feedback from our fans. Um, as for NIB Stadium, it's a great little stadium. We're very happy with it. Um, it, is a, it is a little bit more expensive than I'd like. Um, uh, I've, I've benchmarked, and without going into detail, I'll talk percentages. I, you know, when Tony was CEO of Sydney FC, and um, I benchmarked uh, his arrangement with Allianz, and I also benchmarked um, uh, Melbourne City's arrangement at Amy Park, and uh, I quickly determined that we were paying about 25 to 30 percent more to play at NIB Stadium. And I wouldn't say that NIB Stadium is anywhere near the quality of Allianz or or Amy Park, or particularly Amy Park. So, Especially the uh, the away uh, change rooms, Peter. Um, you need to fix them. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the other thing, Tony, which is a good point, is that I've raised with the government is that when they redeveloped that, uh, which was a Perth Oval and AFL ground originally, when that was redeveloped, uh, and it was redeveloped primarily for Western Force, not for Perth Warry, uh, they spent $100 million. And it's, it, 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 for me, the staggering thing is that they didn't, use any, they didn't allocate any money towards upgrading the existing change rooms in the old stand or creating two new change rooms for when you have double headers. So there's a lot of flaws in that, you know, the, the way that stadium was designed. It was done in a hurry. It was put together in a hurry and it wasn't well thought through. But not only that... It's, it's a staggering cost, isn't it, Peter? $100 million and uh, you, you can't even get uh, appropriate change room facilities. Yeah, and that, but not only that, but they missed an opportunity to, to be able to provide maybe some, you know, admin, uh, admin and consumer... Uh, um, spaces underneath the, the new stand they built so you know I've, I'm sort of amused that uh, you know it is what it is and we are dealing with it but in terms of atmosphere it creates a lot of good atmosphere in our games and we're working with the government at the moment to try and get a better deal in our next uh, our next arrangement. Are there any long-term plans Pete for an upgrade to, to that uh, original stand? To, to, to your is, point, there, there is a master plan. Uh, uh, unfortunately, it's actually linked with uh, uh, the possibility of uh, maybe an NRL team, uh, you know, creating a team here. If that was to happen, the government would then find some money to upgrade or finish that 
the rest of the footprint. Uh, and this is what annoys me most, Pete, without interrupting, is that we're relying on other sports. Surely our sport is mature enough, big enough to start lobbying governments, not just in Western Australia, but right around the yeah. world. And I think that's where the FFA needs to, to play its part. Yeah, I agree. I think we need to do it as a, as a collective a lot better. You know, I've certainly, since I've been here, I've spent a lot of time lobbying government. I was uh, with Football West. We put together a, uh, a project control group and we put a business case forward to the Department of Sports and Rec for a state football centre, which we have both Football West and Perth Glory and our elite requirements with four pitches and uh, high-performance centre and admin offices, uh, which we're still working towards. Unfortunately, the, the coffers of WA, the WA government, aren't that uh, flush, uh, so we need to wait our time, but we're certainly pushing harder and harder to get that state football centre. Uh, just to give you an analogy of, uh, you know, Western Force have got uh, a, a beautiful headquarters here, which we make, we've now uh, subleased a, a space for our headquarters, um, and they also... Uh, uh, redeveloped NIB Stadium on the back of Western Force being created. Uh, Rugby Union has only got 8,000 participants in this state. Football's got 52,000 participants. So in terms of allocating funds, you know, commensurate with participation, I don't think that's happening in government at the moment. And, it, and I think uh, the Minister Murray, Minister Murray, the sports minister, uh, highlighted to me the other day that the AFL gets uh, $11 million from the state government every year and all the other sports combined in this state only get six. So you can see, and, and, and I can tell you that the participation of AFL here is in decline and you know, the participation of football is on, on an incline. So uh, that's a challenge that we need to overcome. You've got two of the richest Australians over there, mate. Just uh, go and knock on Andrew Forrest's door or Gina Reinhardt's door and uh, they'll look after it for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, we uh, thank you for joining us, and uh, we look forward to uh, chatting to you again on the program. We've run out of time, but uh, well done on the job so far, and uh, uh, all the best for the remainder of the season. Thanks, Chance, and good luck with the show. Thank you. Thanks, Pete. Peter Philopoulos, the uh, CEO, yeah. the boss of the Perth Glory Football Club. You're listening to the Football Bosses here on FNR. Welcome back to the Football Bosses. Michael Zapponi, Tony Pignata with you. We've had a great conversation with uh, Ben Williams, head of the... Wilson. A- ben, ben Wilson. Head ben Williams used to be a referee. <laughs> head of the A-League referees and uh, the boss of the Perth uh, Glory Football Club, Peter Philopoulos. Thanks for the correction, Tony. Now, we have one of the biggest weeks for the Socceroos, I reckon since 2005 coming up this week. Uh, Massive. Socceroos on the precipice of uh, qualifying for a World Cup against Honduras. The drama in Sydney next week will be right at the levels that we saw in 2005 against Uruguay. I just want to touch on the financial implications of uh, the Socceroos qualifying for the World Cup or missing out for the World Cup. Now, uh, the FFA have, have said it's not just pride or reputation on the line. There's a huge financial element at stake. Well, the last World Cup, I think it was about 11 million US dollars to qualify for the World Cup. So these, this game in Sydney to win it is, is 11 million US dollars and huge amount for the uh, FFA. And, uh, you know, if we get a good result or on, on Saturday, you know, next next Wednesday, we could get 60,000, 70,000 people to go watch us uh, beat Honduras and qualify. You don't think it'll be sold out? It should be. Well, 
Hopefully. I mean, against Uruguay. Um, but uh, I think a lot will depend on... I think the ticket yeah. sales are strong. If if the result in Honduras is a good one for the Socceroos or the game's still in the yeah. balance, then uh, that place should well, be... I couldn't get a ticket in the VIP function because it's be all sold out. out. So um, <laughs> hopefully there is a big, uh, big crowd. But... Uh, yeah, good result on Saturday will uh, hold us in good stead and um, allow the the team who have charted. I think Qantas have uh, they've charted with uh, with Qantas are playing back uh, remnants uh, what what they did in uh, 2005 and uh, you know hopefully um, Tim's ankle uh, is is fine and um, they get a, a result uh, you know a draw even even a two one score away goal would be fantastic. But it, um, just it, on the financials, even win it. Yeah, on the financials, it's uh, been reported that payments to players and the cost of getting coaches and staff to World Cup costs around six million Australian dollars. So uh, there is a huge cost there. The uh, bonus to qualify for a World Cup is twelve million US to the FFA. And last year, when you look at the finances, the players get half of that. Yeah, when you look at the finances of the FFA, they reported. Uh, 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 $103 million turnover mm. for the FFA and a loss of $387,000 in, in the last financial year. So a shortfall here um, will spell uh, big problems for them uh, should they not make the World Cup. Yeah, I think uh, the last numbers I saw from the FFA, they didn't budget for uh, for qualification. So it could be a good bonus in there. Um, they didn't budget? No. Was that David Gallup thinking with no chance? Well, I suppose take the uh, negative uh, aspect and uh, always a sort of upside. But um, I think they'll qualify. And Um, just before we go, if we qualify, big question marks over what happens to the national team coach. We we don't know what's happening, but uh, the most likely scenario that Angie's not there... Does the FFA go for someone local like Graham Arnold, who's a hot favourite, or do they bring in a Hoos-Hiddink-type mercenary to get us to the World Cup? And there's a financial consideration there as well. Um, you're asking me the question? Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm biased. Um, <laughs> I, you know, if, if Ange does step down, um, and we don't know what Ange is doing, um, I think hopefully Ange knows what he's doing, um, but uh, I, I'd go local and... Um, and Arnie would be the obvious choice. I think he's a different coach now than when he was with the national team. And being with him for the last three years, um, I know what he's capable of. Yeah, he's certainly the most well-credentialed uh, in the uh, competition and uh, has been fantastic for Sydney FC. That sound means it's time up. <laughs> we are out of time here on the Football Bosses. Uh, we thank you for joining us uh, once again. Uh, Tony, thanks for coming in. Thank you to uh, Ben and to Peter for joining us. And we hope uh, you can tune in again next time here on FNR. Bosses with Michael Zapponi and Tony Pinata on FNR Football Nation Radio.